Hey everybody and welcome back to the Fathom and Heavy podcast. Yeah, it has been a minute. Um, took a little bit of a break, had some things to sort out, having nothing to do with the podcast, but everything is good, and I'm going to try to get back on a regular schedule here. Uh, I appreciate those of you who reached out to find out what was going on. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Today, uh, my guest is a return guest. Uh, this is David Eastberg from Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, you can hear more of his full story on episode 10, which we recorded about three years ago. Uh, he was in town couple weeks back uh, for the Iron Maiden show in Oakland. That was on September 10th. And he stopped by and we talk Maiden and we talk goings on in his world. Uh, it's not a deep dive Maiden conversation. We're just two guys, two, two lifelong fans that uh, wanted to talk about why we love Maiden so much. Uh, but there's a lot of other things going on in his life. Um, his band Belletter Jupiter is picking up some steam He's got a second book in the works. He's been doing a little bit of work with the sort of legendary uh, Swedish black death metal band Mephisto. So we get into all of that. Um, also, I wanted to give a shout out to my friend Jody over in England. She has been painstakingly putting together a fathoming heavy playlist on Spotify. Anytime a band is mentioned on this show... She'll go and add some tracks to that playlist, and it is uh, an incredible amount of work, and the playlist is getting very long, and it's super cool. So shout out to Jody for that, and Jody, I will see you in April. All right, if any of you need to get a hold of me, you can email me at fathomingheavy at gmail.com. You can find me on any of the socials at fathomingheavy. Uh, I don't do a lot on those these days, um, but I will occasionally post something, and you can always reach me that way. Uh, okay, hopefully it won't be too long till the next episode, and in the meantime, let's do this. So, uh, welcome back, and you're here today... Basically, you came here to see Iron Maiden in Oakland because you know that Oakland is the place to see Iron Maiden. I heard Oakland is the place to see all the best metal bands because Oakland is rumored to be have like the loudest and craziest crowd. And I've seen Iron Maiden in several occasions all over the world. And if you beat Milan or Stockholm in the 80s, that means you will be the best. So we will see that tonight. Well, I guarantee you uh, that we will be the best. Okay. How many times have you seen Iron Maiden? I have never counted, but I've been a fan since 1983. And I know that because uh, I was eight years old and my brother came home with the new album, The Number of the Beast. And they released Peace of Mind a couple of weeks after, but that for us was the new album. Okay, all right. And um, he turned it on, and I heard it, and I rushed down his room, and when he left, I nicked it and took it up to my <laughs> room, and I looped it for, like, the next few weeks, and he never got it back from me. Was this a vinyl copy or cassette? Yeah, it was a vinyl copy. Okay. all right. I looped it, and uh, he never got it back from me, I guess. Um, I gave him a cassette copy of The Killers, because I had the vinyl as well. Okay. Because uh, I, well, it didn't take me long after stealing his the number of the beast until I uh, told my mother we had to go to the warehouse NK in Farsta outside of Stockholm to buy Iron Maiden records. Mm -hmm. And also in Huddinge, where I lived at the time, we had a small record store called Skivgrottan. I think I got my peace of mind there, and I definitely got my first Helix albums there. Okay. That's something to remember. Yeah, we all remember where we got our first Helix yeah, albums. Yeah, exactly. And a few Saxon 7 inches. Mm. Anyhow, uh, my maiden fanatims started there, and I got so fanatic that I covered all my walls in my boy room with Iron Maiden posters. Uh, <clears throat> a few years later, I left a spot in a corner for Venom. But. Um, these years that's acceptable that's yeah fair. these years 1983 until 1985 when i discovered venom um it was 
Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden and Iron Maiden. Of course there was Saxon, Helix, Rainbow, Deep Purple and these bands too, but they were like secondary. And I got this book um, about Iron Maiden in 1984. I think the book was called Run to the Hills, Running Free or something. It was a autobiography uh, from the band's management. And um, it was released, uh, back then it was released every year, updated with like the latest oh. record and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and the management, is, is that yeah, uh, yeah. Smallwood? Yeah, yeah. Smallwood. I think he was the man behind the book. Okay. So it was the info he was going to let through. And that was a very interesting book where you can read uh, everything from the start in East London in 1975 and forward and through all the years with Dennis Wilcock and Paul Diano and everything. And you, it had like images of uh, from the old days and when the band got bigger and started playing bigger clubs in London, the Ruskin Arms and stuff like that. And then also they came to the stage where they played the Rainbow, which is the DVD from 1980, 1981 recorded, right. like a lot of us have seen. And then the next thing is when Bruce Dickinson steps in and Maiden turns huge over a night. You know, like they, the Beast on the Road, they played bigger and bigger and bigger venues. They sold out Hammersmith Odeon several times on that tour. And then it turns on to 1983 and they play uh, the World Peace Tour and they sell out the Madison Square Garden in New York City and that was like a very big thing at the time because a metal band was not supposed to do that it's still a big thing yeah yeah and um, so there was pictures of the, the sound check of Madison Square Garden you can see like on the pictures, like the bands looks a bit nervous. Uh, this is in '83. Yeah. yeah, and then there is like um, the next pictures, like the success of Madison Square Garden. We see the whole crowd cheering the band finishing the show, and like yeah. it looked fantastic. And that tour ended with um, a show in Dortmund, in Germany, a big uh, festival with um, bands like Scorpions, Crocus, Def Leppard. Michael Schenke Group, uh, and of course, Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest. Mm-hmm. And that show was filmed for TV and was screened in Sweden. And I still consider it, it also is a feature on the, the early days DVD. Oh, that is on it. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. And it's, to this date, according to me, the role was filmed recording live by Iron Maiden. It's a... Everything is perfect. It's really like it's like almost you're watching it on a big screen back home. You were almost there, you know, like, and the versions of the songs is amazing. Yeah. So and when did you see them for the first time? uh, In Stockholm. What year? Uh, Unfortunately, I was not allowed to go to the Power Slave tour. Yeah. My mother couldn't take me, and uh, I was nine years old, and right. I was not allowed to go with my brother. So, for some reason, she wasn't home. She was traveling a lot in her job and stuff. So, yeah, I was not allowed to go. So, I had to wait until the... Oh, what, somewhere in time? Yeah, somewhere in time. What was that tour called? Um, Whatever that was called, but in 86, 87, yeah. in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. and Wasp was the support act, okay. and they were playing on the Electric Circus album. Uh-huh. And um, so that was my first experience uh, with Iron Maiden. That was an amazing show. The Summer Back in Time show uh, was uh, with the Space Eddie. Right. And the uh, big balloon stage, like they blow up like a big Eddie head, like a big uh, like a balloon thing right. on drums. And drum, uh, drums rising up on his head and stuff. So, yeah. But they had big inflatable eddies yeah. earlier than that, with the arms coming out, wrapped in the bandages. Yeah, but that was only on the US, USA part of that oh, oh, oh. World Slavery Tour. Okay. It was not on, in Europe, because uh, I don't think the halls in Europe were big enough for that stage production at the time. There were a few, like uh, East Odin in Stockholm and a few others that were big enough but most of the places were they were not playing that size because they were 
still a very big band, but I think those days they play like in capacity, except for Poland and Sweden. In Europe, they play a capacity of five, six thousand each night. And in Poland, in Poland, they play for a million. And uh, you can see on the on the early days DVD, they play like um, behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They play like an outdoor door stage, and it's like looks like there's a million people. Yeah. Um, they play big halls and stuff, and in Stockholm, play East Stadion and Gothenburg, the Scandinavian, and they both have like a ten thousand capacities. Some, so they were like, um, it's still some of their biggest halls in Europe, Sweden and Poland. So, what was it about them, you know, looking back, that captured like the like seven or eight year old you when you heard them for the first time? What was what did you find so compelling about them that has obviously. It, stayed with you all these years uh to start with look at the cover of the number of the beast record uh-huh. and that might be the best record cover in the world you think it's better than the killer's cover yeah because that was the first one i saw it was the first one i saw too because we came into the band about the same time um but i look back now and look at killers and say there's just something about how wicked eddie looks on that cover yeah you're right about that but the thing is with the number of the beast that was my first impression and right right you cannot beat that feeling and it looked so dangerous and then it sounded so fantastic because i remember like a little time before i get the first black sabbath record and that also looks very mean yeah and it starts with that intro and it scared the shit out of me yeah. i was crapping my pants <laughs> I couldn't sleep that night, so I was a bit afraid of Black Sabbath, but Iron Maiden were more familiar, except uh, the intro for the number of the beasts was a bit scary. Scary but, in the same way that Black yeah, Sabbath was. Yeah, but um, then the Black Sabbath starts the doom. This starts with like a bit of a softer guitar playing. Yeah, so made me feel more comfortable okay it eased you in a little bit yeah yeah and um it didn't take long until uh we had peace of mind in our hands and you know how that record starts drums yeah and about that time i also saw that movie the where he is there so i had a big thing about everything there was eight years old and like I was a fan of the movie Where Eagles There. I was a, and my favorite band played a song called Where Eagles There. And um, for some reason, the B side of that album was the one I was playing most with songs like like Quest for Life and. Quest for Still Life? Yeah, Still Life and Quest, Quest for Fire. Yeah, Quest yeah. for Fire, yeah, yeah. To Tame a Land is yeah. on the B side. And The Trooper is the first yeah. song. Yeah. And uh, To Tame a Land is still one of my absolute favorite songs, written by Dame Murray, if I'm not wrong. For some reason, he's been involved in like all my, all my favorite songs by Iron Maiden. Dame Murray? Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite Iron Maiden record? It differs day to day. Yeah. For the last few years, it's been The Book of Souls, because that's a new album, and it's a great album and I'm still not done with it I have to listen to it over and over again to yeah. discover all the things and stuff there is there and I saw them many times on that tour I was on my way over to the states to see them in Texas but it never happened mm. for some reasons because I get a new job and stuff and I can really like have the time off but I saw them like in Italy in England in Sweden and a bit here and there and amazing Amazing tour, amazing record, and uh, the Milan gig was so intense and so fantastic. I haven't seen a crowd like that since the 80s. Yeah. And um, then also fantastic on that tour was the gig in Manchester in England because um, that was a tricky crowd because Iron Maiden got on stage and people were sharing them coming in on stage. Then they played a few songs. And in the intermission between the songs, it was all silent. And you looked at Bruce Dickinson, he didn't really know how to handle that situation. And then 
they play the song The Book of Souls mean that they finalized that part of the concert where they played new songs and new album and the whole Manchester Arena was standing up and cheering for minutes and minutes and minutes because that means that Manchester had not been silent because they didn't like it they've been silent because they were listening to the new album the new songs being played live mm. and then for the rest of the gig it was just went mayhem yeah mayhem yeah. like any other Iron Maiden <laughs> concert so it's very memorable for me as uh, well as Manchester is a place that's very close to my heart I spent a lot of time there over the years I have loads of friends there my favorite beers from there and okay. yeah a lot of connection there yeah so it made it even that much sweeter yeah so that's that means that might be my favorite Iron Maiden moment till this date but that also a subject that can change day by day because then I remember seeing them in like 1992 or something like oh yeah and then that's my favorite Iron Maiden moment well maybe tonight you will have a favorite Iron Maiden moment I hope so. I have very high expectations for the gig and for what I heard about Oakland and for the insane crowd, the loud crowd, and it's all true. You'll see. I hope so. Um, you know, a few years back we were talking about Maiden, and you know, when Adrian left, I kind of stopped paying a lot of attention. So those two albums with Bruce without Adrian, and then the Blaze records. Yeah. I didn't own for a long time, and um, I was talking with you a few years back about those Blaze Bailey years, and I asked what you thought of it, and your response was actually interesting and made me um, kind of delve into it, which was, you know, they're not great records, but they're not bad records, and they're part of the Iron Maiden story, yeah. therefore, they cannot be ignored, right? And exactly. So, um, so then I went out and got those records, and was actually I had expected them to be horrendous, but there's some pretty listenable songs on those records. And Blaze is not Bruce, and he's not Paul, but it's not a disaster. Um, Definitely not. And uh, like we were talking yesterday, like a song like The Clansman. Yeah. When they do it with Bruce, it's like brilliant, but it's not Blaze. Right. And when right. Blaze do it live. He's Blaze, but his musicians are not Iron Maiden. Right, when he does it with his own band. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but on the other hand, um, they do other songs from the Blaze years, like Sign of the Cross, which uh, Bruce will do so much better than Blaze, I think. Yeah. Did you read Bruce's book? Yeah, I read his book, uh, saw his film, I went to his spoken word. It was interesting, in his book, when he joined Iron Maiden, he said, things are going to change, and I'm going to do this my way, and you have to be okay with that. And they instantly could have said, who is this guy coming in? Yeah. Um, you know, we have a sound, we had a singer, we just need to replace that guy. Um, but they gave him, or he took, they gave him the freedom, or he took the liberty of really injecting something different into that band. And it's hard to say whether it's better or not, but it's certain. I don't think they would have ever attained what they did with Paul Diano. Um, yeah. I mean, they needed somebody like Bruce. Um, and they butted heads over the years because Bruce and Steve are such strong-willed people. What do you think about that? What do you think about the, the tension between the two of them and how that has kind of lit a fire under the band, or if you think it did? Well, it's actually interesting. Did you read the book by KK from Judas Priest? I did, yeah. Yeah, and what he says about Iron Maiden and when Bruce Dickinson started in the band, they did not like him. And I think that's a thing you can see on the the number of the Beast and listening to the, the um, bootlegs from that tour, Beast on the Road and all that, yeah. that there's a lot of fire in that man. And you can also see, if you see the videos from that tour, that Steve Harris is a bit like uh, suspicious at him, like um, had to look over at him all the time to see what the hell he's up to. Uh, so he's not getting things too far because there's a lot of fire in him. Uh -huh. And then you turn it to the next chapter, to the World Peace Tour, and you see the videos from there. And yeah, they are linked together. 
in another way. Yeah. Um, the whole band is linked together in another way. And I don't say that is because of Nico McBrain's appearance in the band, but that might help as well because he seemed like the being a bit like a papa figure for, for the whole band. And maybe also Nico brought another sort of level or another piece of insanity to it because he's a, you know, he's a character. And, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and maybe he helped offset, you know, some of Bruce's energy or somehow they worked a little bit more synergistically yeah. together. And so it wasn't as, maybe it didn't seem as unbalanced when Nico came. No, exactly. What do you think about the differences between Clive Burr and Nico? And Clive is the more technical drummer, but maybe Nico is the more, his playing style might suit the band better. Because Clive is sometimes so technical, so it takes away some of the, the song seems to be more about the drums than the song, than the entire song in itself, like with all the parts with them. But yeah, um, it will have been interesting to hear the following albums with Clive. Yeah. Like, like Peace of Mind and, and Power Slave. But that will never happen, so it's hard to tell the difference. Because uh, when Nico came, Clive already played these songs, so he just had to do a replica of his drumming and put his own little style to it. Anyhow, they had two of the most interesting drummers in heavy metal history mm. in the band. Mm. We know that for sure. We do. Yeah. What about them keeping Yannick once, once Adrian came back? I think it's good. Some people have a lot of issues with Yannick. Um, they think he's too much clowning around on stage and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think that suits the band very well. That also takes the insanity of the other two characters <laughs> <laughs> to another level. True, so yeah, true. yeah. But I, I think it's good, and I like to see them as a six piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think that um, they utilize him fully enough? Do you think that there are enough three part guitar harmonies that they're doing? Um, I've always kind of felt like they could be doing more with that. Yeah, but they could. But it's still Iron Maiden, so. It should still be Iron Maiden and not too much what they can do. They should do what they are supposed to do. What are they supposed to do? Be Iron Maiden. Okay. <laughs> and not be something they are not. And uh, So you think that getting a little bit too ornate with the harmonies would... Um, they're not. They're not supposed to overdo that part. They wouldn't overdo it. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. supposed to keep it like do now, because then it suits well. It comes in well, and then it fits the entire historic sound of Iron Maiden perfectly. They shouldn't take it too far from where they are, because then it's not going to be Iron Maiden no more. Right. That's a bit what happened on the on the records with Blaze Bailey. They took Iron Maiden into something at some points that's not really Iron Maiden and that's I think why people do not like the albums as much as the not too good albums in people's mouths Um, with Bruce uh, the uh, No Pray for the Dying and Fear of the Dark right people not too satisfied with these albums either but they still like them better than the albums with, with Blaze true and then they made a comeback with the Brave New World, which is like an amazing comeback to the complete Iron Maiden authentic sound. And there's like that record is when it came out, I couldn't believe my ears because I haven't heard anything as good since the 80s. But it doesn't sound like Iron Maiden from the 80s either. No. I think that's one of the things that. That's one of the things in a broader sense that I appreciate and respect so much about Iron Maiden is that they continue to make new records. They aren't really making the same record over and over again. They're doing different things. And then they'll go out and they'll tour on that record and play a lot of it. And you know that that's what they're doing. And then at the end, they'll play some some of the classics. But then they'll go back and tour like they're doing right now, like we're going to see tonight, and do like a best of set. Yeah. So... 
they make new music, they're excited about it, they're creative people, and they want to honor that, and so they go out and they play it, and people love it, and then they'll come back and just do the nostalgia thing, because they know people love that too. So they figured out how to balance that and still remain creatively vital and vibrant, you know, and Priest does that too. And it's just, it's, it's awesome to see that, those bands that don't need to make more records because everyone loves them already. They could just go back and play the hits and some deep cuts and satisfy people, but they, they're artists and they need to create art and that's what they continue to do. I just uh, respect them so much for that. Yeah, because when you see bands like, uh, uh, for the last few years, Motred were existing, or, or ACDC for like the last 20 years or something, they make a new album, you listen to it, you might like it, but they play one or two songs mm, from right, the record. Right. And they never play the song you want to hear mm. either. And Iron Maiden, they know they're making good records, and they are developing in a way, because... The latest Iron Maiden record do not sound like the records did back in the 80s, no, but it's still like an, a proper evolution of their sound, so it still sounds like Iron Maiden, but it's not the same record, it's not the same songs over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think that's why it kept me so close to the bands after all these years, because uh, whenever I'm done with the last record, they release a new one, mm-hmm. which gives, gives me new hope <laughs> and a new future. And the records get longer and longer, so yeah. it takes that much longer to really digest them. Exactly, and when they have the new record, then they open up the old records again, because then you have to go back and check them out, and you discover, rediscover the records right, again. Right. Yeah, it's a band like that, so there are very few bands like that. What do you think the most underrated and overlooked Iron Maiden record is? Oh, that must be... The X Factor. Okay. Blaze. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, it must be that one. With Bruce, I would say it is the Summer Back in Time. Ah, interesting. And um, yeah, they only made two records with Paul and everybody prepares the, the first one. I prefer the second one. Yeah, but we, I mean, in a general mouthing, people prepare the first one before Killers and... Um, at least, at least my friends. <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, Killers is my second favorite Iron Maiden record. My first favorite is Power Slave. It took me a long time to decide that, but once I wrapped my head around Rhyming the Ancient Mariner and decided that was one of the all-time greatest songs ever written. Yeah, and then that also has Flash of the Blade, Back in the yeah. Village. Those songs that no the one Duelist. ever talks about. The Duelist. Yeah, um, those are amazing. Yeah. The only song on there that I will skip sometimes is the song Power Slave. <laughs> but everything else is yeah. golden. But Power Slave is a fantastic live song. It is good live, yeah. yeah. But it plods along a bit too much on the record. I get a hard time deciding exactly what is my favorite record, but I will say the first four records is like the era where I discovered I yeah, read, right. and it all came pretty much at the same time to me, so... It's like all them records and like I had uh, I went banana so I took all my mother's money and bought all the 12 inches and 7 inches and stuff that I could get yeah. a hold of and like all the magazines and putting up posters on the wall and t-shirts and stuff and you took all your mother's money yeah yeah <laughs> uh, come on I was 8 and 9 years old I didn't have any money on myself do you still have all that stuff? No, uh, some I might have, uh, but I've moved many times and... Things don't survive the move? No, and uh, also when you're young, you do stupid things. Mm-hmm. You think you don't need that 12-inch no more, so you give it away to your neighbor or something. Mm-hmm. Or um, you trade it for something, maybe a Helix album you didn't have or... Demon album or Satan album or oh, something. I could see for the Satan album. Yeah, because uh, I think there was a time in the late 80s or early 90s because I spent 
so much time on the 80s uh, with Iron Maiden and then discovered the fresh black and death metal. Right. Um, and of course, Deep Purple. So I missed out a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal. Uh-huh. And then somewhere in 1988, 1989, um, started to hang out with Christopher Johnson from Farian. And he played the Demon record, uh, The Night of the Demon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also played stuff by Satan and Magnum and Blitzkrieg and mm-hmm. these bands. And I was like, where the hell have I been the whole yeah. 80s? So I think I traded some Iron Maiden stuff for these records because uh, uh, some of my brother's friends they had them but they didn't like them that much so well there's I mean there's some good stuff in there that yeah. Court in the Act is amazing and some of the Blitzkrieg stuff is really good and Magnum yeah I actually uh, uh, went to this festival this year uh, where, when I saw Satan and Demon mm. and Quartz Quartz? yeah I don't think I know them Oh, it's a British band from the 70s. Okay. Classic band. Yeah. Uh, in the early 80s. And yeah, great band, brilliant band, melodic metal. Still good to see. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, <laughs> so it was quite funny at the festival because <laughs> my boss was wondering, like, okay, uh, you're going to this festival. What are you going to see? I was like, oh, well, in order, I will see Iron Angel, Demon, Satan and Tormentor. And he was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That was the Abyss Festival in Gothenburg. So okay. that incredible lineup. If you like the old metal and then... And Tormentor. Yeah, Tormentor from Hungary uh, yeah. with Atla of Mayhem and Sun. Is he still singing? Yeah. Him? Okay. So they're... Uh, they're and, back doing that again. Yeah, and Iron Angel is an old German right. power, brass, speed metal band. Right. And I didn't like them that much in the 80s, but it was still fun to see and yeah. hear the songs play live. Because you know, some of these German late 80s bands like Iron Angel and Darkness and stuff, they never get me that mm-hmm. darkness. They made a couple of albums, and on these second albums, I think this is the first song called Bloodbath quite an interesting one but the rest is not really for me yeah. I prefer from these these days I prefer like German bands like Exhumer and Death Row and Destruction mm. Sodom Creator and uh, talking about Attila beside Mayhem and Tormentor I've seen him many times playing with Sun and as have I yeah but not last night no because we went to see Sun last night in San Francisco at the legendary The Fillmore and they broke The Fillmore yeah, they broke it. <laughs> it was fantastic because they started the show and they played for exactly four minutes. Then the fire alarm was set on. And then I don't know who did that mistake, but booking a band like Sun, you should know there's a lot of smoke. They filled the venue completely yeah. with smoke, with fog before they actually even start playing. And that must have triggered something. And yeah. then all the power on the stage went off. <laughs> Anyhow, the show started again after some 15, 20 minutes. And um, they played for another hour and a half and like totally bursted us. I still have feeling the bass in, in my, shaking my ribs. Right. And uh, the tinnitus in my ears from last night is still hilarious. But And you didn't, you didn't bring earplugs. No. Yeah. You cannot do that when you see sun. Oh, uh, I can do that when I see sun. I cannot do that when I see sun. <laughs> if I'm ever going to become having a major damage to my ears or become deaf, if that's made by a gig by Godflesh or sun uh-huh. or a band like that, I'd be honored. Okay, you take that. Or by a loud crowd singing along to Iron Maiden. Those three. Yeah. Godflesh, sun, or maiden. <laughs> exactly. The Sun Show was really good last night. A lot of people, I mean, they're such a polarizing band, but I think what they do is uh, is amazing. And uh, I've seen them a lot of times. And just standing there and being enveloped by that volume, I mean, there's not really any other band that can do it in that way. Um, uh, swans. Mm, not even Swans. Uh, they, they're close. 
but Sun has that low end that the Swans don't have. And you might be right, but I haven't seen Swans for a few years, but they affected my body in a bit about the same way. So. Mm. Well, what are you... What are you working on? It's been a few years since you were here. You talked a, a lot about how you came up and where you came from and what you had been involved with. But what are you working on now? Oh, a lot of things. Um, I released my book, uh, the first one in the trilogy, um, was released in July 2017. And what copy, what hand numbered copy do I have? You have one number, number one. one. <laughs> yeah, it's printed in three hundred twenty-five copies, and um, I still have a few ones which I sell at the gigs with my banner if I do spoken word gigs. Mm-hmm. But I don't really have the time to start to sell them by mail and stuff. But of course, if someone writes me and asks, I will do it. But I'm not really doing any business of it. It was really nicely done. I mean, when you were here last time. You were still putting it together, yeah. Um, and we were talking about it, and I had seen some of the, some of the artwork for it. But it turned out uh, really, really well. Are you happy with it? I'm really happy with it. It was um, worth all the years I yeah. spent it. And now I'm working on two new box, books. Uh, the first one is a poetry book in Swedish. That's hopefully done very soon, because I think I'm mostly done with all the writings I had to fill up some lines here and there and some things uh, it right now is doesn't have any illustrator or something to it it's just the poetry so okay I think it will be released that way and then I have the second part of the ornament of the omnibus demoniac which is like no a non poetry book is um it's a book um, I've been involved in a few different uh, traumas. Right. Uh, in 2005, I was uh, had this trauma called uh, Boerhaave syndrome. With uh, I was more or less exploding inside, and it ended up with um, my lung got punctured, and my um, things went down to the lung sac, and uh, turned out as poison. So it was really bad. So this is a this is a medical condition yeah that has to do with lungs and airways and yeah so so the second book is really describing all the pains and um, coming one day living with things and doing things that's uh, normal waking up the next day and you cannot do them anymore right and uh, that's very important because uh, <clears throat> losing a lung like that and Try to build up again is really uh, hard to do things that used to be really clear and uh, normal. Like, for example, growl in a death metal band. Uh huh. It took me years to get some so- sort of voice back together, and um, eventually I uh, felt it was good enough to start out in 2007, 2008. Um, and then me and a guy called Adam Skogwards uh, tried to start up a band, but according to my job, it really didn't happen again because I was working as a, at the nightclub. I was working nights and weekends and stuff when other people uh, do have the time off and be able to end up in a rehearsal room and stuff like that. Right. Anyhow, in 2011, I started the band for real by myself. Um, it's the band I'm still playing. It's called Blood of Jupiter. And... Uh, Blood of Jupiter, all one word. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to me to keep this thing cause as long as I can because of um, being there and not be able to do it one day was not the way I wanted it to be. Um, it really went hard on me to, to not be able to, to make sounds or sing or even talk properly because of losing a lung and so now when I'm able to do it I will definitely do it as long as I can so I've been working with this band for a long time and um, 2011 started in 2012 uh, I get assaulted and uh, that took the band on a break for a couple of years then it's been a few lineup changes and eventually um, 
2016, I met this guy called Frederick Dingwell, and uh, he started in the band, and from there we were working on new stuff, and eventually last year we came out and played live and stuff, and since then we've done a few recordings, but I'm not sure when they will be released. Because right now they're locked into his computer and I need the final cut for them so I can send them to Don Swanet to do the mastering <laughs> and etc. Come I, on, Frederick. Let's get this going. Yeah, but I do have plans to for a new recording um, at Gig Studios with a guy called Connie Wall. He's a great producer and stuff and I really want him to do Blood of Jupiter. So I'm going to speak to him and see when we are able to rent his studio and go there and do that recording of the new material. So until then, we have one gig planned in uh, December with um, a band called Repuked. Okay. And a third band, not to be announced yet, um, at Cafe 44 in Stockholm, which is a legendary, like, um, punk venue. But they had, like, bands like uh, Napalm Death and um, Leak. And, yeah, there's been a lot of, like, more metal and death metal-related bands playing there over the years. Uh, and a lot of like famous hardcore bands and uh, a couple of weeks ago I went there and saw the Japanese Butcher ABZ mm-hmm. fantastic band and last year we played there with Mephisto and Mephisto is um, a whole story in itself I will come back to that in a few minutes but so that's a bit what I'm working on at the moment so the um, next book the Swedish one is called um Stokastiska svärtor och variabler uppgörelsen. It's a very complicated title as usual. Translate, please. Ooh, that will... General, just the... Uh, is, uh, this is not words that you're using... Um, not an uh, easy translation. No. Complex blackness and variations in about. Okay. It's um, just... Dark poetry. Okay, so similar to the last book, but this will be yeah, all sweet. but very different. It's very different this time, and I made uh, some of the poetry I read on um, the last spoken word show I did. It was like um, <laughs> coming back to Mephisto, uh, Roberto or Mephisto, he who was working with this girl, and she didn't know he is a friend of mine. So she came up to his office like, oh, I was at this very different spoken word show last night uh, at the uh. Café Inges Dance in Sturie B. Because um, there was a local journalist called me up and he did an article about him and stuff. And so he started a new genre. She, he named, named it the death metal poetry. So she went there and she was like, oh, whoa. This guy, he, he was doing that and that and that, and then he turned into some of his, what I think is his new stuff in Sweden, Swedish, and he scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so are you, are you reading, your, most of it is in English, but then yeah. you transition to Swedish. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I do these readings with, um, do it with live music. I always bring a musician. Right. I've seen some video of it. Yeah, so put some more atmosphere to it and I think it's more comfortable to listen to when it's music related to to the reading than just me going blah 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 well it fills it out and gives it some yeah some atmosphere and some texture yeah and also I can breathe every here and there Uh, yeah right it's not all on you at that point no exactly so 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 she said that and she she told you your friend from Mephisto. Yeah. And um, and he's like, oh, I know that guy. No, he didn't. Oh, he didn't know you? No, no, no. He knew me, but he didn't say that. He, he didn't. just kept okay. it as a secret. Okay, all right. Because uh, I think he not really want his workmates to know what, that he's uh, got has a okay. second life as a death metal legend. Okay. And uh, taken back to Mephisto, like... Um, yeah, Mephisto, they're... A band from Sweden from the, the 80s, and they disappeared yeah. for a long time, and they're back active again. And yeah, uh, they were active. They recorded two demos in 1986, and I was, like, really fanatic about these demos and stuff, and, and so were Quartin of Bathory. Mm. Yeah, it was really 
legendary because it was a special death metal made with like a very special guitar playing from from the guitarist Omar Ahmed and then um, it wasn't much of a scene back then so they, they couldn't get like a record deal or they couldn't get like gigs and stuff like that so because the scene I, was super it was just starting at that point yeah I think when they vanished uh, Nihilus was still called Brainwarp really early yeah we had like d-beat bands like Svatsne and stuff like that but with the only like known metal band in Stockholm playing like the extreme thing was Bat Free and they didn't play live and stuff they just released record and was like yeah and nobody really knew who Corden was or so that wasn't um, really helping things out for Mephisto so they vanished and then um, Omar Ahmed he moved to the United States and didn't get here from him again and <clears throat> then um say in about 10 years ago this guy from the netherlands rule he contacted me because he started a record label wick records and he was re- was re- it called wick wick records okay he was re-releasing like a lot of like old demo tapes and stuff like from old bands that vanished and stuff so uh, he contacted me because he he knew that I knew some of the guys in Mephisto. It's like, well, I want to re-release their stuff. And I was like, well, it's already done, so I'm not sure they will. But I'll, I'll check with Sandro. Uh, Sandro Kajander be the old bass player and vocalist. And um, he was like, well, I'm too busy to care about that. But here's the address to Roberto, the drummer, so mm. go with him. So I was like, yeah, it's a same thing to roll and uh, he contacted Roberto and um, Roberto was like oh, of course you can re- re-release it and um, they did the release the, the Megalomania puzzle with the two old demo tapes okay they were guys starting to talk again to each other and they found Omar I think the story with Roberto was he found Omar via his uh, Swedish surname or something on on uh, his mother's surname is uh, on, on Facebook. And he was here in the States. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, so they thought they were going to restart the band just to try it out. But quite soon, Sandro made clear he was not interested to to, to do a reunion. And uh, But Robert and Omar, they collaborated and uh, they were sending files over the ocean for him back. And eventually Omar came over and they recorded the 2016 album. Hmm. They made a show in Canada and one in Sweden. And then Omar vanished again. And um, according to Roberto, they were like, they were not really on the same level. The 2016 album was mainly written by Omar and Roberto felt it was not a Mephisto album. It was was a good metal album, but not a Mephisto album. It's not dark enough. So... Roberto won't do this dark album, so he started to do it in his way. And he left the drums and he took over the vocals. Mm. He brought in a drummer and the guy who's been playing live bass guitar with them, he's actually a guitar player, Morgan Lee, but they brought him over to guitar and he started to write songs and came out. So so that was the album that's just called Mephisto, released the other year. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a great death metal album containing guest appearance by LG from Entombed and mm-hmm. Entombed AD, mm-hmm. vocals for one song and stuff like that. So it's, it's really an amazing album. It really like awoke the spirit of Mephisto again. It's not really sounding like the old Mephisto and you cannot do that because nobody can, can play guitar as Omer. Mm. It really has some Mephisto spirit in, onto it. So... Anyhow, that was um, a good album, and when we played with them last year at Cafe 44, um, this guy from Dark Funeral, Shaq Moe, bumped over, and he really liked the album and all that, and we met him and started to get some contact and stuff. And from the, also from there somewhere, we started to share rehearsal studio with Mephisto. Okay. Which means that one day... I bumped into this. I was gonna gonna go collect something or something from from the room, or maybe I should like have a look at our recording and think about something or listen to it or whatever. Um, and I walked in there and I found Shaq Moore 
in the studio, putting in guitar solos for, for a song on the new Mephisto album, mm-hmm. which is released this Friday as a single. It's called Armageddon. Okay. And you probably is, will be re- released this Friday, the 13th of September. That's a fantastic song. The whole thing um, with him playing guitar is like really good thing. So I think you all will be interested in hearing it when... And that, that's the single. And yeah. The album's coming out a little later. The album's coming out in November. Oh. Uh, I'm not allowed to talk too much about the album. But I can tell that, that the single number two will be released the 12th of October on the birthday of Alistair Crowley. Okay. And that's a song called <laughs> Roots Old Thy Soul. And so that's what I can say about the album. And it's also one more thing to reveal that I actually wrote lyrics and vocal arrangement for one of the songs right. as I'm not allowed to say too much about the album but uh, I can this is the song is called Great Demons at War and that will be the first song in the B-side that's as far as I can reveal things but I'm really satisfied with the song and how it turned out and how they worked with my vocal arrangement and my lyrical yeah. stuff and yeah. that's it yeah That's great. It will be an interesting album coming out in November, so I hope all of you will have it, will check it up and remember the old the older spirit of Swedish death metal. Yes, right. Yeah, except Bathory, but Quarton is dead, so carrying the torch, flying the flag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to hearing that, and congrats on that. Yeah, uh, your part in that. Yeah. So we've been going for about an hour. Appreciate yeah. you coming back. It's always a pleasure. Um, to spend a little time and um, hopefully we'll have you on for another episode at some point yeah and until then up the irons up the irons and let's go out there tonight and I have high expectations and I feel feel like Oakland and the Bay Area will fulfill them in total and and check out my upcoming releases with Blood of Jupiter and my books and uh, the Mephisto album My name is David Eastberg and I still like it tight.
Right. 